So, good afternoon. Good afternoon to the people here in the temple, and good afternoon to anybody who might be watching at home. Uh, this is one of the Amarawati Sunday talks, and also it's um, part of a Miltium Meditation Day. That's the hermitage where I normally live. Um, but while I've been living here at Amarawati, I've been able to have meditation days down here. So uh, there may be some people who were attending this morning uh, watching the talk, so welcome to you too. Uh, it's a very interesting title. Um, and it's not one that I chose, or one that I was even expecting to uh, offer some teachings on. Um, I'm here because Ajahn Sundara, who was scheduled to give this talk, um, is not well. So I'm here instead. Uh, the title, um, What is True Love? It's Not What You Think. Something like that. So... I think this is a topic that interests many, many people. Um, and I can't think of how many movies and songs and novels and plays and dramas and pageants and all kinds of things over, the, over generations, hundreds of years, uh, love is something that has been uh, celebrated, spoken about. Um, People look for it, want it, uh, long for it, feel loved, feel unloved, and there can be an enormous amount of suffering around this topic, falling in love and then falling out of love, or I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's part of life's drama, really, isn't it, love? I looked up in the dictionary. I thought, well, let's have a look and see what it actually means, this word, L-O-V-E, love. And uh, there were uh, quite a lot of different definitions. Um, affection, strong affection, a strong liking for, uh, feel of passion, sexual interest, uh, devotion, worship, thinking in terms of like the triple gem or for other faiths, God, Allah, love of God, love of Allah. Um, and the sixth definition was love is a term used in tennis, meaning nothing. So if you lose a match, you're 30 love or 40 love. <laughs> love is, means nothing. You've got no points. Uh, so you've lost. Uh, so I was quite amused that that was included in the, in the list of definitions. The first time I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak, probably it was in London, I can't remember, but um, he gave a talk and he 
has said almost the same thing every time I've heard him speak. Uh, two things, really. One is that basically everybody wants to be happy, nobody wants to suffer. Uh, this is it's the same for animals, same for human beings, same for all beings. People want to be happy, they don't want to suffer. The other thing that he said was related was how important it is that we view all beings, all human beings, and some people like to view animals as well, but particularly human beings, um, as uh, kinsfolk, you know, brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers. And Elton Samadhi will often talk about just being brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. This, this is one thing that as human beings we all, we all share. Uh, kind of grand leveler uh, is one way of putting it, or uh, transcender of differences is another way of putting it. But both these definitions, uh, for me, uh, offer a sense of what is meant by, by true love. Uh, the kind of love that is not selfish in any way, uh, that's freed from any kind of um, contention or views or opinions about people, um, about each other, and can accept it all, everybody, whoever they are, whatever they're doing. Having said that, it doesn't mean that we accept and uh, celebrate their actions, but the human being uh, is somebody who is worthy of love and respect and kindness. Um, so this is a pretty, a pretty lofty uh, kind of um, goal to be able to uh, cultivate and to practice a way of true love. There are many other ways in which uh, people talk about love, uh, and I'd like maybe to talk a little bit about some of those, because it can also give us a sense of what it is that um, hampers our own capacity to, to love fully and completely. So I suppose the one that, you know, if you're talking about love, love stories, love movies, and so on, what, what um, first arises is, is romantic love, or sexual love, you know, or where there's an element of sexuality. And I'm not at all uh, denigrating this, but what I am saying is that sometimes uh, the, there's a confusion. Uh, we mix up uh, true love with uh, desire, simple as that. Loba, kam, um, kama tanha, the desire for sensual pleasure. And if we see somebody who attracts us and we enter into um, a relationship with them, um, it, it's very often, uh, I think for many people, just on the basis of this purely um, sensual desire and the capacity each one has to, to satisfy the other on that level. <clears throat> The tragedy is when people who are attracted in this way decide to stay together for life, uh, to uh, 
have a, a serious relationship to get married and so on, have children. Um, very often what started off as uh, a strong sense of uh, passionate att attraction, attachment, uh, can turn into something very different. And as, as we <clears throat> actually meet the person rather than the, uh, the physical form, actually see, uh, get to know the, the, the person with all their um, uh, conditioning and uh, habits and uh, their whole background. So it can be very, very confusing um, if that's been the main thing that has drawn us together. And if we've never, haven't really taken the time to um, move beyond that in the relationship. In fact, I think probably relationships that uh, are established in that way uh, very often don't last as far as actually getting married or establishing a, a permanent, you know, a, a long term relationship. Because um, uh, often if there's a, a strong interest uh, in, in other people on that level, uh, there's not all that much of a commitment. Uh, somebody asked a question, actually one of the questions was about um, uh, what advice one would give to people who were uh, wanting to get married, you know, whether you know, uh, heterosexual couples or gay couples or so on. Uh, this person wanted to include every, every kind of permutation. And what, I, what came to me when I was thinking about this question was, well, actually, um, there needs to be a commitment and a willingness uh, to accept the other person fully, you know, regardless of um, habits, traits, whether we that we, we, we may not like so much. There'll be times, certainly when we disagree, you know, we, we can't always agree with the other person, don't always want to do the same thing at the same time. And, uh, but in, when we make a, a, like a commitment to a, a uh, like marriage, which is, you know, uh, one would hope it would be um, a very long-term uh, commitment, uh, that requires an enormous amount of letting go, uh, giving up of our personal uh, likes and dislikes, uh, inclinations, and considering what will be good for the other person, what will be good for, for everybody, uh, rather than just what I like, um, what, what, what gives me pleasure. So it's a, it's a going, a, a taking the relationship much deeper uh, and much broader than just one one um, element um, of attraction, which, as I said, is very often referred to as as, as love. Um, of course, very often it, it is love, and it develops into into something that is much more uh, fuller and more more complete, more mature. It's, uh, uh, where there is a, a genuine caring. Uh, for the welfare of the other person. So there's, there's that. Um, there's also the love of parents for their children, children for their parents. And I realize I'm talking to um, a great many people who uh, come from different backgrounds and 
I mean, I would hope that all of you have experienced your, your parents' love and have been able to love your parents in return. But I'm aware that um, in many families that simply isn't the case. And for many people, they haven't had that privilege of um, being brought up by people who, who love and care for them and put them first. And that's, uh, that's very sad. It's like a tragedy, really, in the society because it does create a kind of a wounding, a kind of scarring that can take many years to understand and uh, recover from. But uh, there's a phrase in the uh, Buddha's words on loving kindness that we recite very frequently when we're not uh, in the pandemic and not allowed to chant together. <laughs> this phrase, um, even as a mother, protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So using this image of the mother and, and child, a, a baby, a small child, um, and I think in most cases uh, there is naturally a bond there. Partly it's biological, partly it's a way for the, for the species to survive because a, a baby is very vulnerable, can't, can't, can't survive on its own. It needs the mother for, for food and for, for care. And uh, I was interested when uh, talking with my mother shortly before she died and she talked about the, the wonderful years when I was little. <laughs> when I was a small child, that, that, that those times, I mean, I expect I was quite naughty and didn't always do what she wanted and had temper tantrums and so on. But basically, there was a natural kind of um, affection uh, and tenderness, love. Um, what can happen, I think, in some families is as the children grow up, uh, and maybe, maybe even when they're first born, there is a kind of a, a program in the parent's mind of what, what they would like their child to, to become, uh, how they would like them to grow up, how they would like them to develop. And it's probably often, usually quite unconscious. And I know for my parents, when I was, um, when I decided to be a nun, that was, I don't think it was, I think it was off the bottom scale of of their list of possible futures for me. I mean, they just had never, ever imagined that I would do anything like this. And it certainly wasn't something that um, they were pleased about. And they suffered enormously because of this uh, decision I made, this, this yearning I had to, to live in this way. And they had a, a, an idea that, you know, I would, I would marry somebody who they, they liked and I would have children because that was the thing that had brought them fulfillment. So there was quite a, a clear kind of agenda there. And when I stepped off the, end of the bottom end of the scale into monastic life, it, it took a lot of, um, uh, a lot of patience, a lot of kindness uh, to be able to somehow or other support them in getting through their sense of sorrow and loss. I mean, I was fortunate that, you know, I, they, they, they were basically loving, and so even though 
they were enormously distressed. Uh, there was a sense of, um, you know, a continuing interest in, in supporting uh, what I was doing uh, in their own way. Um, but there are some parents who, who simply can't uh, accept the choices that their children make, or if the children don't live up to the high expectations, um, there can be a very strong sense of, of rejection or disapproval. And there's one story I sometimes tell about somebody who comes to Milntium sometimes, and she's, <laughs> I remember one time I was really shocked, she told this story of one of our meditation days, and she said, well, she said, I was, I was a very bright child, very, you know, clever, clever girl, and one time I got, um, I think it was a maths exam, or maybe it was English, one of these tests that they have in schools, and she said something like, and I got 97%. And my mother, when she heard this, looked very disapproving and said, what about the other 3%? <laughs> you know, she had ridiculously high standards, and wasn't able to settle for 97% and to celebrate that with her daughter. And obviously this was very, very painful for, for the person concerned. This wasn't, in my mind, an indication of love. It was more an indication of maybe pawatanha, the desire to become, you know, wanting the, that the child to be a kind of... Uh, 100% extension of, of them. Uh, you know, uh, um, somebody that they could feel proud of, somebody that they could boast about to their friends. Or maybe it was just that they, I don't know what it was, but there was obviously some kind of difficulty there um, that the mother just wasn't able to uh, bring forth a sense of gladness and celebration that, you know, what I think everybody else would have thought was a major triumph. <laughs> Brilliant performance. Mm -hmm. I had a little taste of this uh, shortly before becoming a nun, in fact. I was thinking about entering monastic life, and um, I had just fairly recently met uh, the monks, uh, Ajahn Sumedho and the other bhikkhus, who were living in the Hampstead Vihara. And I was on the way to the Vihara, and the key moment, I remember exactly where I was in London, and uh, I was early 30s, or maybe 30, 31. I think I was actually, anyway, sometime at 31 perhaps. And at that age, I, I was, my whole sort of system was geared up for having babies. I and mean, I think that's probably the women will, will relate, will, will understand what I'm talking about. There's something that happens biologically where um, it's like broody hens, you just kind of want to have a baby. <laughs> and uh, I remember just contemplating this and also contemplating the possibility of not having babies. You know, if I became a nun, committed myself to monastic life, I wouldn't have babies. And I remember thinking, I don't need to have babies. And I remember thinking there's the biological feeling, um, which 
uh, you know, would, would, would pass with time. And the other thing that was very clear to me was that I didn't need to continue. I didn't need to produce offspring who would kind of be a kind of continuation of me. <laughs> and that may sound strange, it may, it, or it may resonate for some of you, but it, it was a very uh, powerful moment realizing that I could end, that it was all right for this, this being to end without continuing into infinity. Um, So I think it was about the sense of selfhood, you know, just allowing allowing the self to die rather than continue um, through the life of of a, of a child or grandchildren. That I didn't I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to bring more more babies into the world. And I also thought, well, I've probably had zillions of babies in previous lifetimes. I don't know, but. <laughs> That was something I thought, you know, I, I don't need to do it this lifetime. Um, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, of course not, um, but I do see it enormously challenging because to be able to offer true love as opposed to this uh, strongly invested kind of love to one's, one's children is, uh, requires an enormous uh, level of um, honesty, a discernment, a commitment, a kind of confidence, um, all kinds of qualities whereby one can realize that, you know, uh, can actually allow another being to be just the way they are and to offer them unconditional uh, acceptance and support, uh, which is what motherhood, parenthood requires, as far as I can tell, uh, for it to really work. So this is, this is a, an important aspect of true love, uh, just being able to allow um, another person to, to be who they are and to, to grow um, according to um, conditions. And uh, you know, sometimes friends of mine who have children, you know, they say, I, I can't believe how I gave birth to such a, such a, such a being. And sometimes it's in, a, it's in an ex, uh, a positive way. You know, they can't believe to have such wonderful kids, a wonderful child, uh, who has such such lovely qualities. Sometimes, particularly during the teenage years, it's a kind of how on earth did, <laughs> did I manage to have a child like that? You know, with all the kind of things you know that, that, that the parent might not uh, find. Um, uh, congruent with, with, with their values. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very, um, can be very challenging. So for parents to love their children, for children to love their parents, again, it's challenging. I mean, I remember as I was you know, through the teenage years, which is the time that we, I think, tend to try to uh, stand on our own feet, beginning to, to separate, to be uh, an individual um, in our own right, rather than uh, 
kind of tied by the umbilical cord to our parents, to our mother. Um, I remember being very disapproving um, of my parents, particularly my mother. You know, I just was very critical, uh, not really able to accept her as she was. Um, and again, that was because of some kind of attachment. Uh, and it was only when, in fact, it was when I decided to be a nun, actually doing something that I knew um, she couldn't um, approve of, um, that I really began to have a sense of like standing in my own place um, rather than being uh, having that strong uh, kind of biological connection, psychological connection. And then I was able to appreciate her in a very different way, as another human being, rather than this person for whom there was enormous attachment, both positive and also very critical. So basically, relationships are complex. It's, it's not easy being a human being. Uh, there was another question about you know, how uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths can help us uh, in cultivating love and true love. And uh, for me, this is a very, very interesting question because one of the things I realized uh, fairly early on um, and when I first heard the teachings from Ajahn Sumedho, you know, it was actually almost a relief to hear, well, life as a human being is difficult. There is suffering. And the advice about suffering, it needs to be understood. So this got me actually really contemplating my life and interested in, in the suffering that I was experiencing, all the little ways that we suffer um, as human beings, as children, as adults, as old people, everybody suffers. <laughs> and there are the physical sufferings, you know, physical pain, disease, uh, limitations of one kind or another. Those are obvious uh, kinds of suffering. There's the suffering of loss, bereavement, separation from people we hold dear. But the Suffering that I was more interested in was more insidious kind of suffering. The suffering of not living up to the ideal I had for myself. Um, you know, feeling anxious, feeling shy, feeling confused, not feeling totally confident, feeling jealous, feeling irritable. <clears throat> you know, all these things that um, I didn't like. Um, <clears throat> I didn't like them in myself, and I didn't like them in others. So contemplating this and realizing that uh, kindness or love or metta in the Buddhist sense of the word really has to begin here. I began to see that I needed to make friends with these failings. I, I call them failings because that's how I was describing them before. I, in fact, I'd still call them maybe shortcomings. It's not the ideal, but this is how it is. But a, a kind of acceptance of them. Um, so like the mother of the woman who only got 
rather than demanding of myself that I be 100% perfect, you know, superwoman, able to do everything, always say and manifest the right thing, um, do everything perfectly, uh, life and soul of the party, um, excellent leader, excellent follower, excellent this, excellent that, realizing that it's okay to not be perfect. Uh, it's okay to um, feel uncertain, to feel shy, to feel confused, to feel glum, to feel discouraged. These are all conditions that we all experience. And as we really take these on board in our own life, in our own practice, what I found was that the more I can do that, the more I can um, open and be accepting of those kind of difficulties in other people. I used to be puzzled because um, I, I didn't find it difficult to love some people or to accept or appreciate or have a friendly feeling towards some people. But every now and again I would meet somebody who I just didn't like. I didn't want to be near them. And, you know, this used to disturb me. I, I didn't like this feeling. I liked to think of myself as somebody who was easygoing and accepting of everybody. That was my, my ideal. But when I looked into it, what I realized was, when I actually questioned, well, what is it about that person that I find difficult to accept? I realized that it was because they were manifesting some of the things that I had found difficult to accept in myself, that I didn't, that I hated, actually. But let's put it really strong. I hated in myself, that I wanted to get rid of in myself. Once I accepted them, then I was able to actually be there for that person and to attune to the suffering that they were experiencing. And that was the, sort of the beginning of having a sense of this unconditional, um, true love. Um, you know, when we can really accept other people and realize that their suffering is really no different from our suffering. Everybody uh, wants to be successful, wants to be happy, uh, wants to be liked, wants to be approved of. Um, and people try in different ways, some skillful and some not so skillful, to uh, attain to these kind of goals. And there's an enormous struggle involved. So what came along with the sense of kindness, uh, well-wishing, was a sense of compassion. A sense of compassion for the struggle of this one, and a sense of compassion for the struggle of those beings who I met who were stuck in a similar kind of uh, condition, similar kind of state. <clears throat> so I think the hardest person to give true love to is probably oneself. <laughs> the hardest and also the most important. Uh, yeah, definitely the most important. Because, uh, as I said, the more that we can accept 
ourselves unconditionally, the more the heart just seems to be able to um, accommodate. It, it, um, it, it grows grander and is able to um, uh, accept uh, the difficulties of others. It's interesting sometimes when I teach a retreat in the retreat center here at Amarawati, you know, at the start of the retreat, in our shrine room here, we used to have maybe 50 people. I think sometimes they went up higher than that, but usually about 50, 50, 60 people in the shrine room. And I'd, the first evening I'd look around and you know, I'd recognize a few faces and have a kind of friendly feeling towards a few people. But, you know, the others, you know, I, I didn't really know them. And... Uh, over the days of the retreat, we would um, have interviews. Everybody on the retreat would come, and you know, they would, in groups of maybe six, five or six people would come, and we'd chat about their practice and how they were doing. And so I gradually got to know them. And I used to make a practice of trying to learn everybody's names. And uh, on the retreat, everybody sits in the same place. So towards the end of the retreat, what I noticed happening was, um, you know, if somebody wasn't in their place, you know, I'd feel a real sense of concern. You know, are they all right? And then, you know, if they arrived a little bit late or something, I would feel, oh, good, they're all right. That's okay. And just noticing this sense of a kind of just tender concern that would arise in relation to what had previously been a sea of unknown faces. And then, you know, within quite a short time, just... Um, in just having a little taste of, of their lives and how they were how they were managing things that they were dealing with, uh, there was automatically a sense of, of concern and well wishing. Uh, thinking about about teachers and students, I know. I was interested in, oh, years ago, looking into this a little bit, and how important it is also, along with this sense of kindness, uh, is a sense of equanimity. And the Buddha, Ajahn Chah, great, great teachers, I mean, they, they do talk about this in different ways. Um, in fact, the Buddha himself, when he was first enlightened, uh, he had this strong hesitancy about trying to teach anybody because he could see that everybody was addicted to being somebody and fascinated by being somebody and, you know, had really didn't, he didn't feel they were ready to um, appreciate his teaching, which is actually asking us to, to challenge that sense of self, that sense of being somebody, and ultimately to relinquish that. And he didn't think that people were able to do that. However, many of you have heard before about the Brahma, Brahma god Sahampati, who, thank goodness, uh, could see what was in the Buddha's mind and came and said, Lord, there are beings with but a little dust in their eyes. Please, out of compassion, share your understanding with them. Let them hear the teachings. They'll be able to make use of them. And then the Buddha, he, he, you know, with his kind of... Um, supernatural ability was able to see that yes there were there were some beings who would who would benefit you know he spoke about it as 
lotuses growing in the pond and some were able to rise right up out of the pond and into the sunlight and open out into the sunlight um, and then others just on the surface and others that, that you know weren't ready to, to grow up above the surface of the pond. So he decided to offer teachings. But when he taught, he taught with the understanding that some people would get it and a lot of people wouldn't get it. <laughs> but he kept on teaching, even though there were you know, most people wouldn't get it, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to understand what he said. So I think for a teacher, one of, one of the main uh, skills is to be able to just accept the fact that, that not everybody is going to understand what you're trying to teach them. Uh, there will be some get it, and others you just have to keep on um, explaining uh, over and over again. And you know, keep on loving them, keep on caring for them, keep on... Uh, supporting them as best you can, but don't expect them to understand everything. Um, and my sense is that's a really important um, aspect of, of teaching, guiding others, because if um, your appreciation of them, your love of them or whatever, is dependent on them being, being able to, to learn and be a good student, then you're in real trouble. You're in real trouble because, I mean, you may sort of cover it over a little bit and maybe uh, not, not make too much of a fuss of the ones who are really good and maybe not be too disapproving of the ones who are really bad, but they'll pick up on it. You know, we, human beings are very sensitive. So to be able to consider the possibility of a, a kind of unconditionally loving relationship and supportive relationship with one's students uh, I think is a very healthy um, aspiration. Obviously, sometimes we need to um, be firm with people. We need to guide people. We need to correct people. And um, there's a sort of, a, which has been spoken about, I might even have mentioned it last time. Um, it's spoken about very often. It gives a very good example of this, how um, the Buddha was... Uh, speaking to a, a prince who had his young child on his lap. And uh, he was asked, you know, if he ever said anything that people wouldn't like. And the Buddha gave the answer. He said, first of all, he said, well, if your child gets a stick or a, a stone, you know, swallows a stick or a stone, gets it stuck in its throat, you know, what would you do? And the prince said, well, I, you know, I would do everything I could to get it out, you know, even sticking my finger down his throat in order to, to hook out the stone, hook out the twig. You know, why is that? Because I love the child. I want the child to live. So even if it's going to cause pain temporarily, I, 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 I want this child to live. I care about this child. So I'm willing to do that. And the Buddha said, yes, that's right. You know, so there are times when, um, you know, if you care about somebody, the, the kindest thing, the most supportive thing you can do is, is to show them where they're going off the rails, where they're, where they're straying off the path. You know, tell them about it. Because people don't always know the effect that they're having on those around them. And I remember when I was a really surly, horrible teenager, you know, I was, well, I was depressed, I think, but I was very moody. And my family really had to experience a lot of me being glum. And I was able to spoil every occasion with my glumness. <laughs> And I remember one day, my parents had, they, they loved art, 
and they had some very nice paintings. And they were sort of on the walls of, of the sitting room, the living room. And they just bought a new painting and they were so pleased with it. And I sort of mumbled away, saying, oh, it's turning into a blooming art gallery. And uh, my father said quietly, that's quite enough. And he never ticked me off normally, but just that, that little, that was quite enough. It, that, had, that made an impression. He needed to do that because I was, you know, I needed to be uh, shown that uh, what I was doing was, you know, making everybody miserable. So um, I, was, I was grateful for that, that he was willing to do that. This is something that um, is not always so easy um, because sometimes if people um, are corrected, they can feel very hurt, offended, upset, and um, it may have the opposite result to the, what one had intended. But um, if we approach the situation from a place of um, inner calm, mindfulness, uh, with an attitude, a heart of kindness, um, speaking about you know what it is, the actual thing that you're concerned about, rather than you know the behaviour that's inappropriate. You know what was done, what was said, whatever. Uh, gently, kindly, but firmly sometimes. Uh, then the chances are that there'll be a good result. Uh, so there has to be a quality of presence. Um, a quality of, of, of confidence um, in order to do that. You know, if you're frightened or, you know, oh dear, what are they going to say? You know, a fear that they're going to blow up at you, which may be a very realistic kind of fear, um, then probably it's better to wait, actually, uh, and just, you know, contemplate the situation a little bit more deeply. Contemplate your own feelings of anxiety about this interaction that you're going to have. Now, I find that can be helpful. In just acknowledging, okay, there's a sense of, um, I'm frightened. I'm frightened that they're going to misunderstand and blame me and judge me. You know, I'm frightened I'm going to make things worse. So just actually taking that on board and just having, having a little bit of compassion, kindness towards this being uh, can be helpful just to support a kind of inner steadiness. And then, uh, you know, if, if we're really doing it with the intention to help and really take care, then the chances are it'll be all right. Coming back to true love, there's another story from the uh, scriptures that I, I like to think about. Um, it was after the terrible quarrel at Kosumbi that I think we've spoken about almost every Sunday talk we've talked about this where two factions of monks were at odds with each other over a very minor disciplinary rule and the Buddha was eventually having tried to help them to reconcile he gave up and said well I just leave you to sort it out you, you're obviously not able to hear what I'm trying to tell you so he left and um, Shortly after that, he went and visited another group of monks who were living, 
uh, in a one of the one of the parks close to one of the cities um, where the Buddha sometimes stayed, and uh, he went to visit them and. He said, oh, how are you getting on? And they said, oh, well, we're getting on fine. We're supporting each other, and things are going along well. And uh, he said, oh, well, you know, how, how, how are you managing that? And uh, he asked them one by one, and each one said, well, um, uh, I try to consider what, what will be good for them as well as what will be good for me. So I, you know, I think, well, why, why should I? Can can I give up what I want in order to, to to support them? Um, and and I do that, and out of out of kindness, and and they they each said the same thing. So they they, they uh, similar use of, of the blending of milk and water. Just they 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 were kind of like of um, obviously separate human beings, but of one mind. You know, they they they. They were very consciously working together, supporting each other, each on their quest for, for perfect liberation. And uh, and they you know they said and and uh, they they described their kind of daily routine, which involved you know certain practical things and uh, you know how they helped each other and how once a week they would um, talk on dhamma together and just a very simple lifestyle. Um, not a lot of talk, not a lot of um, uh, lively activities, just a quiet contemplative life, but always with this attitude of of, of kindness. And um, that's right. And they, 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 each of them thought how, how grateful they were to have such companions in the holy life, uh, which is a very Lovely reflection, I think, for us living living in the monastery here at Amarawati, living in communities, it's not always easy. We don't always agree with each other. Uh, you know, there, there'll be some people who who'll be really irritating to us, really difficult. Uh, but to just consider, well, I, I'm so appreciative that I have people who are interested in doing this and and supporting me in doing this, in living in this way. Uh, it, it kind of changes the relationship to see one another as brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death, as spiritual seekers, you know, who are aspiring to, to liberate the heart from any kind of selfishness. Uh, so, um, just reflecting on, on, on these three monks who were living together in, in, in the bamboo grove, and how they how they uh, supported each other um, with a sense of of well wishing and kindness, uh, I find is a, a lovely reflection, and I, and I try to do that, <laughs> even though sometimes uh, it's difficult. So true love is not that we always like each other all the time, certainly not that we always like what each other does or says, but there's an acceptance, an appreciation of one another. 
as it goes beyond liking and disliking, and a friendship that can endure. You know, like in monastic life, some of us have been together, you know, monks and nuns, you know, for over forty years, um, and you know, we don't always. We, we, we definitely upset each other from time to time. But there's a basic kind of willingness um, and acceptance. Don't always accept and appreciate the things that they do, and sometimes we have to correct each other, and point things out, offer feedback. But a basic uh, willingness to kind of include and not to wish harm to each other. You know, there might be a temporary kind of feeling of, I wish that person wasn't here, <laughs> or something. But um, we don't hold on to those things. We don't nurture them. I remember one time having a thought about one of my sisters, thinking she'd done or said something that I was really fed up about. And I said, sooner or later, one of us is going to die. <laughs> sort of feeling of we, we won't have to endure this forever uh, of course it passed um, there's a teaching in the Dhammapada that I, I find is very powerful um, and that I've contemplated quite a lot um, I forget which verse it is. It's one of the very early verses, and it's one of the most famous, one of the most well-known verses. Um, and with the Dhammapada, there are many translations. And um, with this one, the, the, the most usual translation is, um, hatred never ceases through hatred, only through love. This is an ancient law. And... I've often thought, that's a bit much. <laughs> you know, to love somebody you hate, you know, how, how can you do that? And then I looked into the uh, Pali to see what, you know, how, to, to see if there was another way of translating it. And um, rather than love, uh, the word is aware, which is non-ill will. And that felt much more suitable because um, in relationship, you know, with anybody, I mean, whether people we know or whether we people we hear about through the media, you know, the politicians, the, the, the terrorists, the you know, murderers, the uh, people who do appalling things, uh, you know, we hear about these things and but the encouragement is, is not, not to hate them. Non-ill will. The willingness to, to set aside one's position of being right. I spoke about this last time. You know, being right and hating somebody because they're wrong. To see if we can actually relate to them as part of the human family who is struggling. I mean, people don't usually do horrible things when they're perfectly, when their heart is peaceful, when they're perfectly happy and inwardly at ease and balanced internally in the way that we aspire to. There's usually some level of denial, repression, uh, ignoring, or 
you know, very obvious disturbance in the mind. And so they, they need all the help they can get. They don't need my hatred. I might have a very strong sense of concern about what it is that they've done and the harm that they've caused. But to hate them is not something that I see as being helpful. But if I can avoid that and just um, not let the mind go into hating. Interestingly, this is as much for my welfare as for their welfare. The Buddha said that you know, ill will is a hindrance. It's a, dis- it's a hindrance, and he likened it to a disease. Um, and do I want to be ill with this horrible feeling of, of hatred, of ill will, of aversion? Do I want to hold on to this? No. When we practice, when we practice meditation, as we get to know ourselves better, become more attentive to what's happening in the mind, you know, we can recognize when there's a thought of irritation or ill will, negativity towards somebody. And we can consciously and deliberately um, avoid buying into it. It's not necessarily going to stop straight away, but we just, um, it's like coming to the neutral position, the position of mindfulness, just observing, noticing, okay, there are these thoughts right now. This is how it feels like. Uh, let it, as, as we step back from the thoughts, it's like a way of letting go, letting the thoughts be. We don't have to involve ourselves with them, however right they may seem. And in this way, we can uh, become a kind of a mirror. So if it's, if it's another person who's done something that's upset us, you know, somebody we know, somebody in our family or whatever, by refusing to um, respond um, with hatred to their hatred, you know, refusing to get caught up in that, that pattern, um, just holding steady, even if they've hurt us, you know, we can feel the ouch, ouch, and just take time to, to heal here. To like, this is where bringing kindness and love to ourselves, compassion to ourselves first. Like in the aeroplane, they say, you know, always put your own oxygen mask on before helping others with theirs. So, okay, kindness towards this being. Just allowing that to settle, allowing that to settle, allowing that to settle. And then gradually, our view of the other person can change from one where there's hatred and wanting to uh, get rid of, annihilate, to a sense of loving concern. How can I help this person? So I'm noticing that it's almost three o'clock and I feel as though I've only just begun to talk about this really um, important topic for us, those of us who are living as human beings on this planet at this time. Um, there are a few questions, and if anybody here at Amarawati has a question, what I thought we would do is have a five-minute break, and then I'll come back and we can have a, a question and answer time. So thank you very much. Okay, so <clears throat> it's five past three.
begin with the first question. I'm not going to read the whole question, but I hope I pick out the um, significant bits. This is somebody, she says, I'm doing work to understand what happened to me in childhood. I lived in a home that was sometimes chaotic and volatile, and I learned many coping behaviors to survive. Uh, and she's working with a therapist. Um, my mind is habituated to expecting danger and to, finding, and to find ways to feel safe and loved. These habits continue to affect my decisions. My aim is to know myself and to feel safe. It is challenging work and needs courage. My courage is challenged from two places. The first is from friends who tells me to practice acceptance and let go of the past. The second comes from myself. My coping strategies are so habitual that I don't recognize I'm doing them and I begin to doubt both myself and the people around me. As I progress, I'm beginning to see these challenges more clearly and beginning to learn to keep to my path, but sometimes it is very difficult. So, I mean, the, the <clears throat> what, what strikes me is the advice from friends who tell me to practice acceptance and to let go of the past. And, of course, it's one of those things that it's completely right, uh, but um, hearing something like that... Um, there can be a sense of, well, how do I do that? I can't accept it. It's unacceptable. It was so painful. It was so difficult, so frightening, so confusing. Um, it's not, I, I, I can't. Uh, you know, some damage has been done, which makes it impossible to um, accept uh, straight away. However, if you begin, as I said before, to with yourself, rather than feeling you've got to accept the people who, who caused harm, accept what happened. Just begin with your own um, pain and confusion and scarring. So like when, when, we, when we have a really bad experience, it's as though there's a kind of a scar on the heart. You know, there's, 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 there's damage done. And uh, that needs to be healed. So just coming to the heart... Um, in whatever way is meaningful for you. I mean, you're in therapy, so you probably have many strategies for uh, contacting, um, you know, going back, recollecting what happened, uh, contacting in some way that, that sense of um, uh, what, what remains of, of the pain, of the struggle, of the fear and the confusion. And just, that's, that's the thing you need to accept, just to, to make space um, for those really difficult um, feelings. And it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it really doesn't. It, it takes time. It takes patience. Uh, you may find that some kind of a little ceremony or ritual can be helpful at a certain stage in the process, and that may be something that your therapist has already suggested, you know, some way of... Um, forgiving, or for, for, of, like for healing yourself, forgiving what happened, forgiving sometimes what you, 
sometimes I think people feel guilty for allowing such a thing to happen, so forgiving yourself for allowing whatever happened to happen or for your part in it, just... Uh, and little by little, as you work here, my sense is that the letting go will, will happen quite naturally. Um, in my experience, you, you have to begin here. You can't try and forgive something out there if there's still um, a lot of pain, hurting, confusion, fear uh, that it, 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 that's, that's left in, in your own heart and distort, you know, distorted ways of seeing things. So that would be one, one thing I would suggest. Um, and I think as your practice goes on, as you um, develop your meditation, as you more, become more attuned to your own uh, mind and mental processes, uh, you'll become more conscious of these coping strategies. I mean, you, you, you're saying that they're so habitual, you don't even recognize that you're doing them. Um, and it brings a lot of doubt. But uh, with, with mindfulness and um, it sort of keeping your own, um, making your own practice, uh, bringing it to the forefront in your life. So, you know, keeping the five precepts as best you can, having a daily practice of meditation, um, and, you know, really uh, attending to your own heart. Uh, would be things I would I would recommend, and as I said, patience, enormous patience. You know, when when there's been a lot of damage, it takes a long time for it to heal. Um, but you will notice changes little by little. You know, you'll feel more at ease in yourself and more able to relax with um, people around you. Um, but it may take a bit of time. So I hope that's helpful. So I have a couple of pages of other questions, some of which I've already spoken about, um, about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, this person who asked this particular question, um, what would you advise someone who is rejected by their family because of being... LGBTQ, which um, I've only just recently learned. In fact, I still don't, not quite sure if I know what they all stand for, but basically either lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. Um, and my sense is that this is something that probably many people um, have experienced, a sense of rejection by their family, the family just not able to um, accommodate this... Um, uh, the situation where, you know, you're not doing what they expected, what they hoped for, in what they think of as the normal way. A little bit like my family, with me being a nun. <laughs> you know, it definitely wasn't what they expected. Fortunately, they didn't reject me, but it's, I'm imagining it's a, it's a similar kind of feeling and very painful, very difficult uh, to know how to respond and how to you know, if you care about your family, how to, how to actually support them through the process. You can think of it like a process of grieving. You know, they're having to let go of their idea that they had for you, you know, their future that they had planned out for you. They're having to let that go because however hard they try, things are not working out the way that they had hoped for, that they had longed for. 
that they had expected. So it, I think, I mean, for myself, I found that recognizing that was very, very helpful, that there was grief, and it was natural for there to be grief. And grief, like any other, th any other emotion, um, changes. So it's not a permanent condition. Um, not permanent in terms of like lasting for the whole of their lives or the whole of your life. Neither is it permanent in terms of um, moment by moment. So sometimes they'll feel more upset. Other times they may, you know, may not. They may forget about it if they're doing something that they enjoy. One of the things I found with my own situation was that I, I had cre I created a kind of sense of my parents grieving horribly. And, you know, 100% of the time. And then I thought about it. I thought, no, of course they're not. You know, there are times that they're doing other things that they enjoy, that they forget. And then maybe they remember, and then they feel sad again. So, Ajahn Amaro told a story a week or two back about somebody whose parents were very upset about their becoming a monastic. And that was actually my parents. And Ajahn Sumedho saying, you know, the kindest thing you can do for your parents is not to create them. So not to create them as being um, like something fixed, you know, fixed, solidly, disapproving and rejecting, um, but to see them as, I mean, just as we all are, we're all dynamic processes, we're continuously changing. Uh, we may think of ourselves as a fixed, solid entity, but as our practice continues, uh, as we meditate, as we become more aware throughout the day, we see that we're, we're changing constantly. You know, our idea of ourselves is changing, and our mood is changing, and you know, there's constant change. And we begin to see, well, I'm not, I'm not this fixed, solid thing, this fixed, solid entity. So, neither are your parents. So when you meet them, if, if, if they're still willing to, to, to see you, uh, try not to fix them as uh, disapproving of what you're doing or rejecting you. you know, try, to, try to see them as, as your parents, the people who've given you birth, who've raised you, who've loved you, who've cared for you, and you know, brought you into adulthood. You know, try to see them in that way. Um, try to see them as human beings who've done the best they can and who are a bit bewildered and confused um, by what you've chosen to do. Um, you know, it's natural for them to feel bewildered and confused. And rather than blaming them for that or judging them or um, you know, tr sort of trying to, trying to make it all right, uh, sometimes just allowing it to be all wrong for a while is the kindest thing. And just to allow them to go through their process and to be there with them in it. Uh, I mean, this may be too much, but this is what this is just what's coming to my mind right now. You know, that true compassion is a willingness to bear with, to go through somebody's suffering with them, to share it with them in some way. So you're not rejecting them, you're not trying to make it all all right, you're not trying to justify what you're doing, but you're there with the pain of it. And you may find that you yourself um, actually uh, touch into your own uh, sorrow about 
the way that things are evolving. You know, even although you're clear about your your commitment to your path and and what you're doing, uh, there may be a, a sense of uh, some sense of sadness um, around you know the, your family relationships. So acknowledge that. But as I said, grief, sorrow. Lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, they all change. It's part of a flow. It's not a fixed, solid, horrible thing that you've got to fix. So, perhaps the first thing would be to say is um, kind of don't expect them to be any other way. Uh, you know, don't expect your family to be any other way. But this is what they're going through right now. This is how they are right now. And it will change. Um, so keep a heart of kindness. Uh, stay with the, the process, the difficulty, the awkwardness of it. Um, and just let your heart speak. You know, you may find yourself saying something that you hadn't expected to say that is just something to support them in understanding what's happening for them. You may find yourself suggesting something or offering them some kind of gift or, I don't know. It, uh, but when there's, when there's mindfulness and kindness uh, and true love, then the right response will come forth. And I do wish you well with that because I can see it's a very challenging, painful situation for you. But try not to get lost in too much self-pity I mean, I know it's sad, I know it's difficult, but it's difficult for everybody. You know, things just haven't worked out the way that anybody expected. And that's difficult. And okay, you found something, you found a way of being that, you know, feels good for you. And probably you have peers who can support you in that to some degree. So uh, this, is, this, is, this is what feels right for you. But, but give space uh, for your family to... Um, not feel they have to uh, change how they're feeling and let them go through that process, give space. Um, I think that's enough on that one. I hope that's helpful. Uh, there's a question about whether we would um, be willing to officiate at a wedding of LGBTQ couples. And I think it depends on the monastic and the monastery. And I have, I've performed, not, not weddings, because we don't actually marry people, we don't do the official legal ceremony, but we can bless couples, you know, who are committed, who are, you know, who've maybe gone through a civil ceremony. We can perform a blessing ceremony. Uh, and I've done that on several occasions, uh, once in a monastery and once in somebody's house. Um, so, as I said, and, and, and there are monks and nuns who perhaps would prefer not to do that. In fact, I know one monk who, who doesn't, you know, doesn't even bless marriages just because he doesn't, it doesn't accord with his way of practice. He doesn't, he, he doesn't do that. But uh, there are others who, who are quite, would be quite happy to. So... It's not that it's anything. I mean, it's it's like, um, and when I was contemplating it, it's just really like, really like supporting people in their commitment to one another, you know. And living together is not easy, as you probably know. It's very challenging, and to stay together 
is very challenging. It demands a lot of courage and integrity, uh, commitment, uh, willingness, humility, everything. Um, so they need all the blessing they can get, as far as I can tell. Um, so there was another question somewhere on a similar theme about, um, oh, here we are, about Buddhism um, accepting those um, kinds of alternative, I'll just call it alternative, kinds of love relationships, and particularly Buddhists in more conservative societies such as in Asia uh, and Thailand. Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I think it varies from place to place. I know there are some and some traditions that are extremely disapproving. Um, and um, others are much more uh, accepting. So I think you would really need to feel it out. I know in the time of the Buddha, all kinds of, there were all kinds of different ways that people were together. And, um, you know, in, in Thailand also, I've, you know, I've, I've seen uh, people who were obviously in, uh, shall we say, non-conventional uh, relationships and seem to be perfectly accepted. But I really don't know um, is, a, is a short answer, answer to that question. Uh, it needs, I, I would suggest if, you know, if, if you're planning to travel, you know, with, with a partner, then it needs a bit of sensitivity, a bit of feeling out. Um, unfortunately, it's still not something that is universally accepted, as we know, but it's um, certainly a lot more accepted than it, than it used to be. Things are, things are changing. Uh, I think from a Buddhist point of view, the thing is, you know, if, if we're talking about true love, it's actually living in a relationship with somebody in a way that is not harmful or exploitative uh, on either side. So you're not with the other person because of what they can give you, either materially or, you know, like physical pleasure or whatever, uh, or status. Um, but it's, it's in a, a relationship of mutual support and, and, and kindness. Um, you know, that, that would be the, the concern from a Buddhist point of view. You know, if you're looking at the Eightfold Path, then right speech, right action, right livelihood are all to do with um, uh, kindness, support, helpfulness, um, concern for another's welfare, not, not exploiting, not deliberately causing harm, um, you know, as, as far as possible. Um, and a sensitivity to the situation and to those around you. Um, another question here. Did the Buddha give any justification on why he left his wife and child? <laughs> this is one that comes up often. Uh, many people are quite critical that the Buddha would do such a thing. Um, I've just been reading a book by uh, an American author about uh, the women in the time of the Buddha, called Stars at Dawn. And I think if you read that, you'd be a lot more shocked just reading about the Buddha's early life, which within our tradition is not really much spoken about, but if you kind of think about how people lived in those days um, and the kind of society. Like the, the Buddha was a prince. He lived in a royal household. And in those days, it was quite common for, 
well, normal for uh, wealthy rulers to have many wives. So, and the Buddha's mother, Queen Maya, she, she died a week after he was born. And her sister, um, who was another of the king's wives, um, raised him. And it was she, Mahapajapati. She took care of the child and raised him along with her own child, children. Um, and there would have been many, many, um, many women kind of living in the harem. That was, that was just how it was. Uh, and so, although, you know, in modern day, looking at it from a modern point of view, you know, where we have the, 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 the norm, I think it's still the norm, is to have husband and wife and children living in one household. Um, I mean, I know for many families it's not exactly like that, but that, that's the kind of uh, conventional idea of, of a family. So if the husband uh, left, that would leave a very big gap, and the wife would have very little support. Um, whereas in the time of the Buddha, there were, there were many... You know, there would certainly have been lots and lots of women around and with their children. So uh, um, the, the Buddha's wife, Kisa Gotami, would have, you know, would have had friends and companions around her. Um, but the real justification um, that, you know, is just me thinking about it, I, I'm not sure if he... Well, he does speak about it in the scriptures many times, about his sense that um, for the work he needed to do, uh, he needed to be alone and he needed to be uh, in a place where he could live very simply um, and do a lot of meditation. Um, his family had done their best to keep him in the palace, um, done their best to keep him surrounded by every conceivable kind of pleasure uh, so that he could um, uh, succeed to his father, the, the, the king, the ruler. Um, and he was, he was very much loved and nobody wanted him to go. But when he realized um, what was needed to understand and to come to terms with what he'd seen, the specters of old age, sickness and death, these two inescapable facts of human existence that he had finally uh, uh, understood. He wasn't going to be able to do it with all those distractions. Um, so it wasn't that he was doing it for selfish reasons, but he was doing it because uh, he needed to understand um, the outcome was that both um, <clears throat> his his wife, Yashodara, sorry, not Kizagotami, his Yashodara and his son, they both uh, became monastics, they both uh, joined the order some years later, and both of them um, attained to the same uh, sense of freedom. You know, once he'd understood suffering and its causes, which is uh, what, what he needed to do, 
uh, understood how, how suffering came about and how that there was a way that human beings could liberate themselves. Then he shared it, um, after Brahma Sahampati's pleading, he shared it with, with other beings, you know, whenever they asked. So, um, so the only justification was that actually he, he realized he couldn't do it um, in the situation he was in. Uh, and, as I said, as a way of helping us to feel better about it, uh, Yashodara and Rahula wouldn't have been uh, left on their own um, with nothing. Uh, there were certainly um, lots and lots of other people around, and there was, there was plenty of financial support for them. Uh, so it, although it was obviously tough, extremely tough, because they had no idea what was going to happen, what the outcome would be at the time. Uh, it, it was perhaps not quite as tough as, as we might imagine. Um, maybe we'll see if there's a question from the floor, and if there is, I'll answer that. There are one or two more questions here I could respond to, but... Is, does anybody here? Yes, Dean. Ajahn, um, I want to ask if uh, the this love that the mind whether the mind can ever think about this love, this topic we're talking about, and if uh, this love is synonymous with equanimity or related to it. In the second part, I'd like your comments on... I like the phrase you use, uh, loving care. If, uh, if, if it's actually possible that in any moment in our life that this loving care is not required? Loving care is not required, did you say? I didn't quite hear. So the first part I ask is mm. this quality we, we are discussing about love yeah. uh, is something that our mind cannot comprehend, cannot okay, think yeah. about. So we are pointing to something. So I was wondering whether it's related to equanimity. So this thing that we want to cultivate, want to focus on. So we call it love for now. And you, you talk a lot about loving care for oneself, for each activity, each actions, each mental actions. So that, that means in every moment of our daily life, our whole life. So the, the, the question my mind has is that, is it actually required in every moment <laughs> or not? Is there um, ever a moment where there is loving care is not required? Is there such a moment? <clears throat> My sense is that as, 
as, uh, as the obstructions to that love, um, loving kindness, this, this radiance, as the obstructions to that fall away, then um, it doesn't actually feel like hard work. I mean, when you describe, you know, you've got to be uh, loving and caring every moment, it, it can sound like very hard work, but that um, over time uh, it becomes just the nat- one's natural way of being. It, it's not something that you do or that you think about. It's just how you are. So um, it's not like I am thinking about doing this, but as the sense of selfhood and uh, identity begin to, to, to drop away, then it's just the natural result um, of that kind of consciousness. And as you say, you know, it's not it's not really an intellectual thing. You know, you can't think yourself into loving, although you can use thought. You know, I talked a little bit about pondering, reflecting on on different things. Um, you know, you can use thought in a very skillful way to to direct the awareness to actually look at the feelings. Um, but in some ways, uh, true love is it's it's is much more like a, a a way of being. I think would be my understanding of it. Does that kind of answer the question? Hmm. Oh, I thought I I thought I touched on that loving care. Um, I would say yes, but I think it doesn't feel like a personal thing. You know, as, as, as <clears throat> um, over time, rather than me showing loving care, you know, at first, you know, it's, it's definitely me practicing and cultivating this, this uh, inner awareness and, and care for those around. Um, but that as time goes by, uh, it's just more just like a natural state of being. It's not like there's me and a you. It's just that that, 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 that there is just us or is just uh, life or whatever you'd call it. Consciousness. I mean, Ajahn Samedi talks about pure consciousness. Um, and he also said, like, pure consciousness is, is like love. It's just the same. Um, I, I can't claim to be at that stage, but it's... it's uh, that's my sense of what is being pointed to. Yes, it sounds like uh, what Nongpo Sumedho has talked about. Yeah. The sound of silence in the presence yeah. that sustains all beings. Mm. You've, you've, I've got it. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, it's, it's a gradual, gradual process and uh, not something we can think ourselves into. But as I said, thought is very useful, but it needs to be used skillfully rather than just habitually. Uh, so spaces in between the thought are good. Yeah. Okay. Anything else from the floor? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, do we have energy for a bit more? <laughs> I can do a bit more. 
<clears throat> what might be your advice regarding unrequited love? <laughs> so, um, unrequited love has a real strong feeling of of lack, almost as though one is looking for the other person to fill that aching void that we have within us, that we need somebody to, to, to fill that void. And uh, I presume in this situation we're talking about somebody who we love, we love like we really, really love them a lot, uh, but they're not returning it. They're not showing any kind of um, recognition or appreciation or uh, interest in entering into any kind of relationship. My sense with this is it can be a really important teacher for us um, because we need to really examine uh, the nature of, of the love that we feel for that person. You know, are we, are we loving them for what they can give us back? Are we loving them for, um, you know, like the pleasure they can give us, the satisfaction they can give us, the uh, financial security or something that they can give us, the position that they can give us? You know, are we, are we, are, are there little hooks? You know, does our love have hooks in it? Or is it um, unconditional? You know, are, are we able to just love and appreciate somebody um, with no expectation of anything? And that, for me, would be like 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 true love—that we're not expecting anything back, but we can just love. You know, sort of. I don't care whether you love me; I I love you. Um, and if we, if if that's if that's the case, and it's it's really important to, to, to notice the hooks, because my sense is that if there are hooks, that they're the things that are obstructing uh, the response of the other person. If they're feeling that you're um, needing them in some way in order to be whole or to uh, be satisfied in some way, then they're not they're going to be quite guarded in their relationship with you you're not going to um, they're not going to be able to respond to you in the way that you would wish if you're able to love them unconditionally uh, to, to kind of unhook the hooks so that there's just I love you no matter what uh, and really mean it then you'll have a sense of your own fullness and dignity it's almost as though you've kind of completed yourself without needing that other person. So that even if the other person doesn't respond, you'll have your own sense of completion. And if the person does respond, then there'll be a possibility of entering into relationship. So then it becomes a win-win situation. Either way, uh, something good will come out of it. I hope that makes sense. Uh, I'm just talking from my own experience and reflection, so it's not like an ultimate truth or reality, it's just how I see things, uh, since you asked me. <laughs> uh.
there's another question, which is kind of about love, but more about what isn't love or uh, what can go wrong. But um, there's quite a few questions here. This person has been asking about um, the, the true love actually very often becoming distorted and how in the media you hear of very um, upsetting accounts of d- domestic violence, sexual abuse, rape, child abuse, sex trafficking, and so on, even the murder of romantic partners, and so on. Um, and then bringing it to uh, situations where um, there was the Me Too uh, movement where people are speaking out about um, where they've experienced directly uh, some kind of inappropriate sexual contact with people. And um, did any of these above issues come up for the Buddha to advise on? And did he speak to what might be at the root cause of why they wish to partake in such heinous behaviors? Well, basically greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, Fear, desire, longing, greed, selfishness, foolishness, not understanding uh, the Four Noble Truths. You know, if they understood the Four Noble Truths, they certainly wouldn't do these things. You know, trying to find the sangsara, basically trying to find satisfaction, uh, but actually just creating conditions that are making the satisfaction far less likely to be attained. Um, than if they were to approach the situation in, in, in a different way. It's very sad. I mean, people just very often don't have the guidance. They don't have the um, good fortune to have had um, to have grown up in situations where they were properly guided. And uh, terrible things have happened and are happening. So there would certainly have been... Uh, terrible things happening in the time of the Buddha, um, abuses of one kind or another. And, um, you know, the Buddha was very clear, you know, if, if, if you act or speak uh, from, from a place of, of lust, of hatred, of self-seeking um, or aversion, then, you know, it's not going to bring happiness. It just isn't. <laughs> it can't. Um, so he made it very clear. Whereas if you treat others with kindness and consideration, uh, if you practice restraint and appropriate relationship, then you know you, you have a possibility of creating uh, a happy situation for yourself and for uh, and for others and for the society. So a very strong emphasis on just basic, basic, simple ethics um, that would be repeated over and over again. Um, I haven't got actual scriptural quotes about it, but I, I, you know, there are many occasions where he would have met with um, all kinds of people. Um, and then a very practical question: in the wake of Me Too, etc., what safeguarding measures might Amarawati have in place? Good question. Well, we have um, child protection. 
policy and procedures in relation to the family activities that we have under normal circumstances, family camp that happens here um, every year, well, has done up until now, um, activities for teenagers and so on, meditation, uh, and, and in regard to guests, in fact, I think you have to be 18 years old before you can come and stay as a guest here, which is just part of that. It's unfortunate that we have to impose that, but that's one of the safeguarding measures that um, is in place. I think either, either 18 or else to come with somebody who takes responsibility for you. I'm not quite sure, but it'll be on the website if you're interested. There's also um, something called registering concern, whereby if any layperson uh, has an experience or sees a, a monastic behaving inappropriately, um, particularly in regard to these kind of things, then uh, they're invited to, to let us know about it you know, through, through the office or through Ajahn Amaro, you know, this, and then there are certain steps that can be taken. So we do have a certain amount of those kind of things in place. And I have to say, it's, it's really regrettable that it's necessary, but it clearly is, and so we've done the best we can with it. Uh, so there are a lot more questions, um, and maybe there'll always be questions about this topic, but I think maybe we've had a, enough for today. Um, and perhaps it's time to finish. I'm kind of looking around, seeing if there's anybody saying, no, no, please let's have another question. Or, yes, it's time to finish. Uh, I'll do one more. One more question. Did the Buddha advise around parenting skills, or the lack of, and attachment theory, and how a traumatized adult might subsequently navigate this in the present. Actually, I think I've already spoken about this one, so let's leave that one. Uh, yeah, I think, I think actually I've, I've, I've covered the other, most of the other questions. So thank you very much for sending in questions, and thank you, Dean, for your question, and thank you for uh, participating in this uh, afternoon talk and discussion. Oops. <laughs> and I wish you well. And next week, we have a talk from Ajanyana Ratu, who's living here right now, and his, his topic is Voices in the Head, Mara, Divine Messenger, or Ordinary Delusion. So you're all welcome to uh, tune in or come along for that. On the that'll be on the nineteenth of September next weekend, next Sunday. So thank you very much. <laughs>